please take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we come this morning to the last cycle in this first book of the Bible. If we've now worked our way through most of the book, we begin to see some of its structure, don't we? The first 11 chapters dealing with primeval history, the history of the beginnings. Chapters 12 to 50 dealing with the history of the patriarchs. And then of those patriarchs, we saw the life of Abraham and the great promises made to him in chapters 12 to 25 the life of Isaac and Jacob in chapters 25 to 36. And now, here in this last cycle, chapters 37 to the end, chapter 50, we see the cycle that focuses particularly on Joseph and Judah. And we're introduced to both of them in this chapter, but above all, we're introduced to the continuing work of our God in the lives of his people. Our good and gracious God continues to do his work for his glory, even when he's hard to see. He's involved in the details of our lives, and we can then have hope because he is. In order to see that, though, we, we need to hear God's word. In order to hear God's word, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him to come. Would you join me, please, in praying? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come as your people this day, and we desire to hear your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. We pray that you would open our eyes of faith, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of, him, of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. When, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceable, peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? 
I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This is what we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Because his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you've been working on a business deal for several months. You've been hashing it out with lawyers on both sides of the transaction. And now you have the final contract in hand. And so you and your team, you're going through it with a fine-tooth comb. And if someone were to watch you working your way through the contract, asking you, why are you spending so much time reviewing it? You would undoubtedly say something like, well, you know, the devil's in the details. Or you've received a special offer in the mail. Now, you're used to getting these, but this one seemed different. It offered you a, a free three-night stay down at 30A in Florida if you would simply agree to listen to a 60-minute pitch from a real estate developer. And so you pick up the phone and you call the toll-free number and you ask about it. You're trying to find out more information. And, and as you and your husband discuss it that night after dinner and, and whether you should take advantage of it and, and what's really going on and whether it's all too good to be true, you, you would likely say, well, you know, honey, it might be good, but, but the devil's in the details. I'm sure there have been other circumstances and situations where you've used that phrase as I have, that, that the devil's in the details. And, 
usually when we use that phrase, we mean one of two things. Either that the details are likely to trip us up and we need to be on top of those details. We need to master the details because the devil's in the details. Or we use that phrase because we're fearful that people are, will try to slip details in and, and try to manipulate us or, or swap things out, kind of a bait and switch, offer us this and, and give us that. And so we need to watch out for the details because the devil's in the details. Of course, there's another thing about that expression. Uh, we generally will say it when, when things seem to be too good to be true. Surely there's going to be something to mess us up, something to, to ruin the good life, something that ultimately will, will cause us not to be able to follow through because the devil's in the details. But what if we changed the expression? What if we began to see that it's actually God who is in the details? That God is actually the one who may be hidden to our sight, perhaps, and yet is actually involved, actually in ways that we cannot see. He's the one working out all things for his glory. Well, what if we begin to see that God is in the details, working all things together for our salvation, not just when things are going well for us, but especially when everything seems like it's falling apart. When things are going from bad to worse and from worse to worst. That, that, that God's in those details. What would happen if we believed that God was in the details when evil and calamity was not just happening around us, but actually happening to us? Well, I think this would be what would happen if we began to believe that God's in the details. That no matter the difficulty, no matter the hatred that you experience from others, no matter the hostility, no matter the evil actions of others, if you believe that God is in the details of your life, hidden but yet there, you would have hope. You would have hope. You would have an earnest expectation that the God whom you've come to know and love in Jesus Christ hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. He didn't turn away. It didn't happen by accident. No, actually, God is there. You may not be able to see him, doesn't mean that it'll all turn out happy. It may not be the solutions that you desire, but you would have hope because you would know that God is there, that the sovereign king is in fact present even when we cannot see him, even when his work is not obvious. God is the one who's working all things together for good, for salvation, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. You'd have hope because God's in the details. God's in the details even when we experience the hatred of others. I mean, to me, that's one of the most striking facts uh, that you find in the first 11 verses of this story that we've read together from the Bible in Genesis chapter 37. It, it's the hatred that Joseph's brothers have for him. If you have your Bibles open, you, you'll see that. Look at, look at verse 4. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Again, at the end of verse 8, so they hated him even more 
for his dreams and for his words. And even though it's a different word translated in verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Joseph to be in this family where everyone hated him? Where his brothers were jealous of him, suspicious of him. They just plain didn't like him. Now, some commentators, when you read them, they want to blame Joseph for this situation. They'll say something along the lines of, well, Joseph's only about 17 years old, and, you know, he's kind of a snotty teenager, and it's undoubtedly somehow his fault that his brothers hate him. I completely disagree with that. In fact, I don't think it's the result of Joseph's actions that his brothers hate him. I think there are actually two other reasons why Joseph is experiencing the hatred of his brothers. The first is the fact that he is favored by Jacob. You see how Joseph was Jacob's favorite in, in the first two verses. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, jo Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. So these verses, verses 2 and 3 especially, they, they, they show us the ways in which Joseph was Jacob's favorite. First, we see how it was that, that Joseph actually was used by Jacob as his overseer. I actually think that's what's going on in, in verse 2. Jacob had actually sent Joseph, though he was a boy, to pasture the flock with his brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And he's there not just helping out, he's actually there to make sure things go well. When something bad happens, Joseph tells it to his father. Now this isn't Joseph being a tattletale. It wasn't as though Joseph was there hanging out with brothers and something bad happened and he said, oh, I'm going to tell on you. I'm going to go tell dad. No, that's not what's going on. Joseph was there for that purpose. Jacob didn't trust his sons. As subsequent events will show you, that was a, a wise uh, um, commitment on his part not to trust his sons. He didn't trust them at all. But he believed he could trust Joseph. And so Joseph was there because he knew that Joseph would tell him the truth. And his brothers knew that he was there as Jacob's representative. And that's why they hated him. But there's a second way in which uh, Joseph is shown to be Jacob's favorite. Not just that he was his overseer over his brothers, but, but Jacob gives Joseph this, this sign of authority. We call it the the coat of many colors. Perhaps you might remember the old Broadway show, Joseph and the, and the Technicolor Dreamcoats. Uh, this coat was undoubtedly something of many, many colors, but that wasn't the main thing it was. It wasn't that it was just a flashy kind of coat from the 1990s. That's not what's going on here. Rather, this was an ornate robe, probably long, stretching to the ground with large fringes on it. And, his, and the brothers knew exactly what it meant. Joseph was in charge. The coat of many colors was actually a sign of authority coat. 
Joseph was wearing it, and Jacob had given it to him to wear to show the brothers, though he was the 11th born, he actually has the rights of the firstborn. Though he's the 11th born, he's the favorite son. Though he's the 11th born and only 17 years old, dealing with men who are 30 and 40 years old, you better listen to Joseph because he has authority. That's what the coat was marking out. You might remember several years ago, a couple of Supreme Court chief justices ago, that uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist was, was not happy with just a plain black robe that was supposed to signal impartiality and justice on the Supreme Court. He wanted everyone to make sure they knew that he was the chief. He was the chief justice. So you remember what he did? Uh, on his black robe, he actually had a series of gold chevrons placed on his robe so that whenever anyone looked at the court, they knew who the chief was. He had the symbol of authority, the gold chevrons, marking him out. That's how this coat worked. Every time Joseph's brothers saw him wearing that coat, he was saying, I'm the chief. And it wasn't his fault. Jacob had given it to him. And so with this obvious favoritism, is it any wonder that Joseph's brothers hated him? Hated him because he was favored by their father, Jacob. But, but there was another reason why they hated him, not just because he was favored by Jacob. No, far more importantly, they felt like he was favored by God. I, I think that's the import of the two dream scenes that you have in verses 5 to 11. Dreams in the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis, are, are a means of divine communication, and generally... Dreams signal God's favor to the individual because God, through the dream, was telling that individual what was going to happen next. It was a sign of favor for God to do that. And when the dream was doubled, as we're going to hear later in the Joseph story, it was a signal that these things were certain. They were bound to happen. God had decreed it so. And so with these two dreams, what's the message? Joseph is going to rule over his brothers. Indeed, he's going to rule over the entire family, including his father. They're all going to bow down to him, and that was ordained by God. It wasn't just Jacob who favored Joseph. God favored him. God had picked out the 11th born son so that all the other brothers would bow down to him. The stars, if you will, were aligned to make it so. He would be exalted over him. Is it any wonder they hated him? Hated him because he was favored by their father Jacob? Hated him because he was favored by God? Is it any wonder that their hatred led to hostility? I mean, when the, the scene shifts to the very specific situation uh, that will ultimately lead to Joseph being sold into slavery, starting in verse 12, this, this general hatred that's described in the first 11 verses focuses into a specific hostility. And you see it in the various thoughts, hostile thoughts and words that the brothers have. In verse 12, once again, uh, Jacob sends uh, Joseph to be his overseer. Uh, you see it in verse 13. Israel, that is Jacob, says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. I'm putting you in charge. You're their overseer. I need to know how things are going. I trust you. I don't trust them. Go and bring me back word. And so 
So Joseph sets out from Hebron. He's heading to Shechem. It's a 50-mile journey to the north. It's going to take him three to four days. When he arrives there, as he wanders around, he cannot find his brothers. He discovers they're in Dothan. That's another 15 miles to the north. And so he sets out after his brothers. And then, as he draws near, they see him. Right? That's what verse 18 tells you. They saw him from afar. How did they recognize Joseph? That's right. He's wearing the symbol of authority coat. That coat of many colors. Here he is coming as his father's overseer. Here he is coming with the symbol of authority over them. Here he is coming as the one favored by God to rule over them. And immediately what comes to mind are hostile thoughts and hostile words. We see it in verse 19. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Did you notice? Did you notice where the, the, the hostile thoughts and words settled? Not on the fact he was coming as their overseer. Not even on the fact he was wearing the coat, the symbol of authority coat. No, it was on the fact he was favored by God. Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the one favored by God. Let us kill him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Now, I, I actually think that it's likely that, that their, their conspiracy to kill him was really largely grousing. Uh, it seems as though Reuben, who I don't think has a lot of respect from the brothers, is, is, it seems like he's able to put them off. But it doesn't mean that, that their hostile thoughts and words don't lead to hostile actions. No, they in fact seize him and they throw him into the pit. That's what verses 21 to 24 tells you. This pit into which Joseph is thrown is likely a limestone pit. It was dug in order to capture the rain that would fall during the three to four months of rainy season in order to, to last and to care for animals during the eight to nine months of dry season. And when you read what they do, there's a kind of violence in their actions. The, the Bible actually says, he came. They stripped him of the symbol of authority robe. They took him and they threw him into the pit. And then they callously sit down to eat lunch. Later in Joseph's story, he's going to tell you that he actually was pleading with his brothers as he's there in the pit. He's screaming with, don't leave me in this pit. Don't do this to me. Meanwhile, they're sitting there eating lunch. Can you imagine how callous they must, how hardened they must have been in order to hear their brother screaming and weeping and pleading with them? And they're sitting there saying, hey, oh, Asher, what what'd you bring for lunch today? Is that a BLT? I love BLTs, particularly when the tomatoes are really ripe. Yeah, yeah, Judah, that's, that's exactly what it, you have peanut butter and jelly again? Oh, I love peanut butter and jelly. A little protein, a little sugar, keeps you going. Can you imagine? What are they talking about? And yet they, they sit down and they're eating lunch while Joseph is screaming. But then they see afar off, they see these Ishmaelites, these Midianites. They're second and third cousins descended from Abraham. And what do these Ishmaelites do? Well, they're traders. They trade in all kinds of goods. They're also slave traders. And it's then that Judah steps to the forefront with an evil plan. In verse 25, he says, 
uh, verse 26. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be against him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. It all sounds so noble. He is our flesh and blood after all. We shouldn't kill him, at least not with our hand. Let's sell him into slavery instead. Well, this is as good as killing him. I mean, for all they know, they're going to sell him to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. The Midianites are going to take him to Egypt. And they're going to sell him literally God knows where. And they don't ever intend to see Joseph again. And for all their care, he's basically dead. This is evil. It is pure evil. It shows the depths of hatred that the brothers felt. It sends Joseph into Egypt where they will never see him again. This is purebred hostility. But that's not all. It's bad enough they've sold Joseph into slavery. Bye-bye, Joseph. Never to see you again. But then they go and they lie about it. They deceive their father. Of course, they deceive their father in a way that they tell the truth, right? They take the coat, the symbol of authority coat, they tear it, they dip it in goat's blood, and then they send it on to their dad and they say, hey, dad, you, whose coat is, you know whose coat this is? They don't say anything about what's happened. They let their father connect the dots. And you, you come to see that their hostility is not just towards Joseph. Their hostility is actually toward their father. How dare he make Joseph the favorite? How dare he give him this coat, this symbol of authority coat? How dare he take the 11th born son by this other wife and exalt him over us? Reuben may have slept with his father's slave wife and wished him dead, but all the brothers agreed with him. They wanted him dead too. And they communicated it through what they had done. This hatred and hostility that typifies this family it's ultimately tearing them apart. Of course, some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to live in a family where, where, where hatred and hostility is tearing you apart. You're the husband that lives on the first floor while your wife is living on the second floor. And you really don't talk to each, to each other until you're in the kitchen at the same time. And then it's just the most basic necessities and pleasantries. And, and you're not really certain whether your marriage is going to last because of the, the deep sense of hostility and hatred that's characterizing your marriage right now. Some of you have children who have told you that they hate you, not just as four-year-olds, as they experience oppositional defiance syndrome. But as 24-year-olds, they say to you, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with your religion. I don't want anything to do with your church. But above all, I don't want anything to do with you. And the hatred and the hostility, it's tearing you apart and it's tearing your family apart. Others of you know what it's like to be in the workplace where where you and your company, you're the, you're the one who desires to be honest and ethical, a person of integrity, a man or woman of integrity. But you work with others who are more than happy to cut the corners in order to make the cell or build the hours. And, and you are a living rebuke to their consciences. And they want to destroy you. They don't want to work with you. They want you gone. 
Still others of you know what it's like to walk into a room, whether it's a gathering at somebody's house or, or at a club somewhere or in a restaurant. You walk into the room and there are people who will literally look at you and turn the other way and walk away from you because they can't stand you. You know what that hostility is like. You know what that hatred is like, where people won't even look you in the eye. It seems as though in those times, perhaps Joseph felt it, where it's hopeless. Things will never change. The situation's incredibly dark. But listen to me this morning. Listen to God as he speaks to you from this place in the Bible. All is not lost. There are reasons to hope. Even though you cannot see them. Even though you cannot see him. God is present. And God is in those details. It may be even in the fringes of, of the situation that you're dealing with. But God is present. He is there. He is at work. It may not be clear to you. There's two hints here. Reasons why we should derive hope from the situation that Joseph finds himself in. Two different small little details that show us that God's present and he's at work. He's in the details. The first is there in verse 14. Joseph has made his way to Shechem. Uh, and I love the way Moses writes this uh, in verse 14. Uh, he gets to Shechem, verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields. Right? I can imagine what that's like. I feel it every time I walk into the fellowship hall on Wednesday night and I'm looking for my wife. I literally walk into the fellowship hall and I go like this. You know, I can't find her. Where, she may be sitting right in front of me. I can't find her, right? I'm wandering around. I can't. That's Joseph wandering around the fields, except it's worse. He's 50 miles away from home. He doesn't know anyone in Shechem. And then, oh, just by chance, a coincidence, as he's wandering around in the field, a man comes by. And oh, by coincidence, as he asks him, do you know where my brothers are? He happened to have overheard a conversation where they said, well, we're going to Dothan. Now, what does that tell you? These coincidences. Was Joseph is wandering around Shechem, wondering where in the world his brothers are. A man happens to come by, happens to overheard where they've gone, and he can go off. God wants him to go to Dothan. God was the one orchestrating the situation in Shechem to make sure he gets to Dothan. To be sure the brothers choose evil and they do so out of their own agency. They choose it freely. They do what they want to do. But God is actually the one governing all his creatures and all their actions to make sure that Joseph gets to Dothan. He's in the details. There's one other little detail. And it's right at the end. Uh, verse 36. Uh, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, sold Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The Midianites could have sold him to anyone. They could have sold him into hard labor. It could have been disastrous. It could have destroyed him in the matter of months, if not years. But instead, to whom is he sold? Oh, Potiphar, 
the captain, the guard. He's the head of Pharaoh's security team. We might say he's the head of the Secret Service or the head of the CIA. He runs a prison as part of his responsibility for where high-ranking political officials are. This is a small detail, but it could be a whole lot worse for Joseph. God has put him in a place where he won't be destroyed, though his people don't know where his, he is and his father presumes he's dead. He won't be destroyed. He will be cared for. God has not abandoned him. God is in the details. He's the one who's giving direction to all of these things, which means if God is in these details, what details in your life might you find God? the time where you just happen to run across that friend who just happened to give you a word from the Lord from Holy Scripture that just happened to meet your need at that moment? The time when you were going to plunge yourself into some kind of sin or make a decision that was going to lead your family astray and you just happened to come across a Bible that was open, you just happened to look down at the verses and you just happened to meet your need? Or you hadn't been to church for months and months and months, but you just happened to show up on a particular Sunday where the preacher happened to, to tell you something that was exactly what God wanted you to hear. Where is God in your details? He's there, you know. Even though he may be hidden from your sight, even though you may not know fully what he's up to, God is there. He is present. He's in the details. And it may be hard at times to, to find him, but if you look with eyes of faith and you ask God to, to, for him to show himself to you in the place and in the moment, I suspect that he will. Because that's how God works after all. He works in the details. He's the one who, who makes sure that all things work together for salvation purposes, for good and you see that even in the outlines of this chapter, in the details of this chapter, because this chapter, Genesis 37, it's an outline of another. Another who would come to be rejected by his own brothers, who came to his own and his own did not receive him. This one was favored by God and man and by his father especially. His father would say of him, you are my well-beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he would go to his, from his father's house into the far country on a long journey to seek and to save the lost. And he would be known as a good shepherd, calling out his sheep by name, but his brothers hated him. And in their hostility, they seized him and stripped him of his robes and mocked him. And they threw him into a pit, a garden tomb. And unlike Joseph's brothers, Israel actually killed him. And it was all abetted by one of his friends who sold him for a slave's price, for a handful of silver. Friends, don't you see that in the midst of all of the evil that's outlined in Genesis 37, that is again mirrored and picked up in the very story of Jesus Christ, you have a scene of unmitigated evil in which the Lord of glory is crucified at the hands of sinful men. They did it freely. And it all happened on a day we call Good Friday. Not Evil Friday. But Good Friday. They meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. It wasn't obvious at the time. In fact, it took three days for it to come clear. But it did come clear. God was in the details. So friend, why should you have hope this morning? 
Why can you have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? It's because God hasn't abandoned you. In the midst of the hatred and hostility of others, God has not abandoned you. You may not see him clearly. He is there. And he is ensuring that all things will work together for your good, for your salvation, because you love him. And you've been called according to his purpose for the praise of his glorious grace. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your kindness. That though sometimes you hide behind a frowning providence, and though the clouds often look dark, and though we cannot always interpret the text of our lives, yet we do believe that you are moving in a mysterious way your wonders to perform. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and to rest in you and to believe that you are, in fact, in the details of our daily lives. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your worship booklets. There you'll find our hymn of response, this wonderful hymn text written by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Let's stand together to sing. Mm -hmm.